Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard Creative Team. We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer our listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now, on with the show. All right, our guest today is Los Angeles-based interior designer and writer, David Netto. He's on the 8100 list. His work has been featured in Vogue, Elle Decor, Architectural Digest, House Beautiful, House and Garden, Town and Country, Veranda, and more. He's also written about the history of architecture and design for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times Style Magazine, and is now a contributing editor for Town and Country. But today we are talking about his new self-titled book published with Fondant Press. David, welcome to the show. Well, it's so nice to be with you. Thank you for that thorough resume (laughs) preparation you must have done. Oh, it was actually a summary. I feel like I could have gone on, but... (laughs) But um, I have for the to, sake of the listeners, yes, I'm sure it's well, better that you didn't. You know, we wanted to jump into the questions and the and your gorgeous book. I um, was telling you before we started that I was just totally blown away by it. Um, Thank you. You know, I just love the way you mix things together, and I feel like I'm pretty comfortable mixing styles. And there were so many times where I was just like, "Huh, I could have never thought that that would work," and it looks so good and is perfect and so i just have i mean maybe we can start there what what were some early influences that you had that helped you sort of hone your your style and the way you pair you know sort of um or juxtaposition things together well first of all thank you caroline for saying those nice things about the book um you know, these books become so consuming when you when you make them that you can't see it anymore, you know, and you certainly can't anticipate. I mean, you hope for the best, but you can't put the response in anybody's mouth, you know. Um, and one of the fears I had um, about my style, such as it is, was that it was going to be um, hard for people to close their eyes and sort of grasp what, you know, what is that style? What, what's it about? What's the message of David Netto's decorating? And, and, and a signature style does help with that, which I, I think um, what you're saying the nice things about is actually that I don't have a signature style. You like the surprises and the combinations that you wouldn't have seen coming that are driven by two things, mostly architecture responses to architectural context. Um, because I trained as an architect and that's the sensibility that I sort of bring to designing is hardscape and getting into character through what the building is. And then also um, trying to make rooms that are a portrait of the person, of the client who lives in them. So they are what they say in architecture school is site specific. But that wasn't your question. You that you said, you said <laughs> no, but nice it's a good start. I like it. You asked me a question, which was say it again. Well, I was curious what your sort of, you know, I I read that your father owned Cowtan Tout, and I was yeah. so I imagine you had some early influences around, um, you know, yeah. style and interior design. But where do you would where would you say you kind of got the confidence and passion for sort of 
mixing the things together um, that you do? Okay, I, I get it. I get that's a good question. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I didn't get it from my father owning Count and Tout. I have not. I've, I would say of all the things that interest me in design, textiles are not in the top three. I like furniture. I like architecture. Mm -hmm. I like cars. I like ships. You know, um, and somehow soft goods, you know, was never my my favorite passion. I I don't. Also, I don't think it's my primary skill set. I mean, you know, you always sort of are more excited by things that you're good at. And and I I've tried to do fabric design and try to get a textile collection together, and I'd love to do that. And I just don't think I I, I might even suck at it. I'm not sure, but maybe it's maybe it's just not time yet. I always. Uh, thought it was my weakest link. Um, so the way I learned to combine things as a child was not because my father was in that business. And before he he owned Count and Tout, he was actually business partner with my godfather, Alan Campbell. And if you know Alan Campbell's fabrics, you know, I watched those being painted by hand, some by my father Incredible. at the kitchen table when I was six, five, six years old. So that was always around. But what my father did also was collect furniture. He was... Uh, a collector, I mean, of good antiques, French and English 18th century furniture. Um, he was passionate about that. And we lived in houses that were nicely done in a style that had to do with really good antiques being, you know, the theme of these rooms. So I think I always had more appetite for theater when it came to furniture and combinations than my family had or then 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 our apartments looked like they were going to um, be about because because that meant combining modern with antiques right you know which is when it gets really hot chrome tables and glass and halston plus you know 17th century stuff with with real sort of patina and and um the character of age combined with that my parents were not like that they were not great decorators but they did have good antique furniture. And part of the mystery of being small in a house with things like that is discovering signatures on French furniture, which he would show me underneath the desk that I'm actually sitting at right now in my house in LA. Um, and then um, secret compartments in drawers and things like that. You know, there, there was the character of a building in this antique furniture. And so I, I was, any kid would be excited to be shown a secret compartment, right? So there was taste. But I, I think I probably learned the most about combinations from looking at the movies. You know, I love to watch old movies. My parents were older, and the interiors in the movies were what really got me thinking about interior design and the possibilities of living with all that drama and, um, you know, p passion for uh, style. I love that you use the word theater because I do feel like if, there was a um, sort of connective tissue in all of the spaces. It's the drama and the, it's, you know, some designers, they sort of like use these bold prints or they do a lot of layering to create drama. And your drama is really through the, probably the scale, but also the combination of the things together that are just so like surprising and dramatic i don't know <laughs> should you use well, the word let's not like intimidate everybody you know? i mean there might be some clients out there who don't want all this drama we've, we've well we've it got is comfortable our... <laughs> it's comfortable you know um and actually one of the questions we gotta pump funny the brakes said... on that everyone will get scared 
<laughs> it's funny you say that about textiles, though, because I was very curious and interested in your in your window treatments because there were so many times where you like layered. This is such a small detail, so <laughs> I don't know why we're starting here, but um, there were so many times where you layered like two panels together, you know, a like a double hung um, panel, and I you don't see that all that often, and it just is, was really beautiful. I was curious when you when and why i guess you're you're layering the two panels together um i like to line curtains in the pattern and then turn the first ring around when they thread them onto the curtain rod so that you see that that leading edge of the lining it's always more exciting to see something at a in a glimpse that's beautiful than to just be able to look at it as long as you want um, and so something that I come back to and I do do again with window treatments is, is rather plain, you know, white or whatever on the uh, in, inside face of the panel. And then the pattern or the, or the color red or whatever it is, you know, surprise, sort of the drama on the outer face. So you've noticed that if that's what you meant by panels. And I think it was. And that's, that's a way of making things more exciting and not and, and, and keeping people wanting more. Um, yeah, there was that one bedroom, I think in I think it's in a California project where it's sort of a blue and um brown bedroom and then you have just a red leading edge. Mm-hmm. It was I mean, I could that's an, an example. I could have never Well, understatement, thought of you that. know, yeah. it's not it's it's the the best way to be in good taste, to be elegant is to do too little. One nice thing I've heard about rooms of mine that that I I loved from someone whose opinion I really respect is that they look like a sketch, slightly unfinished, of this sort of traditional style that we associate with Mark Hampton and Parrish Hadley and, you know, great 70s and 80s masterful American design that I grew up looking at. I don't think I complete rooms to that extent that those kinds of rooms were, with pairs of candlesticks on every mantle and you know i learned to make it a little bohemian by 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 leaving out that one last trip around town and making it a little unfinished well the other thing you know and you you mentioned um wanting your projects to look like a portrait of the the owner um and you talk about this a lot in the book storytelling as being the foundation of good decorating and i was curious if you could kind of expand on that and maybe share how our listeners who are mostly decorating for themselves can kind of, I guess, uh, employ that or apply that to their own projects. Well, storytelling in decorating means that something is not about uh, one object. This is this, you know, that, that cliche, the, the rug that really tied the room together you know, or something like that. It's not, it's really great rooms are about the alchemy of composition. And th- from that comes the storytelling because when you get um, a narrative going about how these objects are talking to each other uh, and communicating with each other, then that's the storytelling that I, that I refer to. It's not just the room impression of the room and the story that it may offer you. It's the story of the objects communicating with each other. And those are new stories. Those objects have never met each other before. Uh, so it's part of what you're creating if you're, you know, doing it at that level. And then also the, um, 
story of the person using this room, you're giving them an identity that maybe they never knew they wanted. I mean, they better want it if you're going to have any success in this job at the end. It's risky because even if they, they, they have to like it, they have to want it ultimately. But it may be something that they hadn't ever thought of themselves as using or occupying or certainly needing. So the portrait is, is, is uh, it, when it works the best, is of someone that they haven't been yet. It, it's adding to their life, you know, in recognition of who they are, but giving them a total surprise successfully. And you are such a storyteller in yourself and the, your love for individual objects and the way you place them in a, and create that story like you were speaking to. How, how do you allow each of these, because so many rooms have furniture, but I would almost say that they are art more so than they are furniture. How are you allowing them to sing in the spaces without being, you know, overwhelmed with each other? Do you mean literally the art in the rooms that, that you like, or the furniture is so great that it's like the furniture is the a work furniture of art? The furniture even is famous Thank designers you. and well, architects. That's and... a lovely thing to hear about one's own uh, work. Furniture, you know, um, when furniture is properly deployed, it is like sculpture. It is like characters in a play. Um, the art analogy is, is uh, I wouldn't, I dare say that myself, but I'm happy to take the compliment if somebody else wants to say that, that furniture is used artistically. I think that um, furniture is very important in terms of, you know, especially the power of uh, chairs. Chairs can sort of be moved to any angle. A, a chest of drawers has to go somewhere. It has to go up against the wall. It has to be in a certain logical position, you know, and it anchors compositions. Chairs are like chess pieces that can move in all directions. They can, they can be repositioned, they can be viewed from the back, and uh, you can put a straw hat on one, and then it's not, you know, it's talking about something else completely than if it was by itself. They are probably my most versatile tools in terms of using furniture artistically in a room. And um, another thing that is very helpful to making rooms look um, artsy, dramatic, or bohemian is uh, sculpture. It's literally sculpture. I said the furniture you, you were looking for to behave like sculpture, but I always try to include small or large sculptures. They help a lot to lift it. Yeah, I loved your furniture plants. Um, you know, they they felt like they had so much well they were like loose and sort of um there was like movement and they looked so versatile and i was curious like where do you start when you're creating well, a furniture plan i i'm classically trained right so i actually did learn to make a furniture plan from um working for bunny williams i she did not draw a lot but you would watch her lay open the trace and know exactly where she wanted to put a, someone to put a drink down and she would say that as she was drawing um, and when I was working for an architect who did Bunny's work she would supply the furniture plan in a way that determined the door swings and the position of a fireplace you know because she wanted two seating groups and not one in, in a room of a certain size and so I you know that came from Parrish Hadley from her time there 
and there was a certain received way of knowing those those decorators knew how the clients wanted to live and that really is the most important thing i mean aesthetics are are given you have to be able to make beautiful rooms and surprise people and do something that sort of evokes or responds to its time when when it's published people get excited about you know what this represents in terms of design culture now but you also you really have to to understand the way the clients want to live and i've i've walked into uh i recently you know walked into one of the most beautiful living rooms i've ever seen in um a georgian house from the 30s incredible architecture and i could tell right away that nobody ever used that room they walked through it and they went to the smaller sort of sun porchy room that had a bar in it and that if that room had had a games table where you could play cards or backgammon or have a puzzle going and if the bar tray or drinks tray had been set up in the living room you know all you need is like two good reasons to use a place and then you gravitate towards them and living rooms that don't have that are postcards you know um i'm i'm bl- blown sideways here remind me of the original question I, I talked too long. Oh, I about <laughs> what? no, I was asking about seating you plans. You like my I think, furniture no. plans, and yeah. I told you how I learned to do that. No, I think but, that's a great um, way to yeah. You know, there are very, there's there's other ways of making rooms amazing that uh, don't have to do with friendliness of use. But I just don't really do that very much. That's not mm-hmm. who I am as a designer. And I would say, in the early '70s, great great decorators like Ward Bennett would do these sort of empty rooms with a pair of chrome tables by themselves and a leather, you know, me stay bed. And it looked great, but I just probably don't need to do that very much because <laughs> yeah. I don't know who wants to live that way. Is that something you think people do wrong? Like if they have a room that everyone loves, they try to put everything into that room instead of, okay, you don't use this other room. So create a use for the room. Well, the way people live has changed, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, when when beautiful houses were designed in the 30s, 20s and 30s, there was a hierarchy of use of space in those houses that was completely universal and understood. And there was a staff wing with seven people in it all the time that didn't really come out of there. And then this, the, the, the hierarchy of use was also driven around meals, you would use the dining room. You would retire to the library. You would um, receive people for drinks in the living room. And it was a lifestyle that's totally gone now. People don't use <laughs> houses that way. Because um, if you look at floor plans of houses now, the ki- the kitchen is huge. It's the center of everything. And it's open. And the dining room really needs to be programmed as a library too or something like that if you're going to use it more than <laughs> six times a year. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, if you look at, you know, great apartments designed in the 20s and then you compare those plans with somebody like Robert A.M. Stern's plans, you know, very, very Mm -hmm. capable apartment designer with huge success the buildings have because people want to live that way, the way that he designs for them in them. Bigger windows with balconies everywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. There's a kitchen family room sort of combo where there used to be a kitchen, a servants' hall, and a pantry in the in the in the 20s apartments that this refers to, he's blown all that up and given people what they really want to use today. But the challenge as a decorator, if you want to make, you know, an, a really elegant house, is to get them out of the kitchen and into that living room, that that 
prime front of the house real estate and using it. Do you like an open floor plan, a sort of a kitchen that's open everything personally? Um, I don't care that much about kitchens. You know, I'm, I'm not a cook. I have uh, two children. I've raised two small children in a house that had basically a galley kitchen, almost like something on a boat in the Neutra house in LA mm-hmm. that I'm talking to you from. And I ne- I've never had an extravagant kitchen myself. So I think that you want to give people what they they want. This is their house and mm-hmm. they know the way they want to live. So you 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 that's just out there. It's Nancy Myers changed the world when it came to what people thought they needed from their kitchen. And that's there's no going back. You know, everybody's seen that and they want that. So I have to keep up with that and deliver it. I like those spaces for everybody that cares about using them so much, but for myself, I'd really rather uh have an orangerie or <laughs> something that no one else cares about. Because I love, you know, like hexagonal garden pavilions or something like that. I'm I'm about weirder stuff than a big family kitchen for me. I loved the hexagonal uh, room in the was it the uh, the the salt box house? Yeah, in Millbrook, in the book. Yeah, the yeah. octagonal, octagonal, octagonal. Hexagonal's really weird. That's for the like the, the super <laughs> freaks. Um, octagonal, although I took a lot of shit for that when the, the client was making fun of, they just thought the design was so weird in the beginning. There's a Kung Fu movie from 1980 called The Octagon with Chuck Norris. And we were the same age that he knew I would get that. And he, the husband, um, had plenty of jokes about the octagon, but it turned out to be uh, exactly what that house needed. Now, a lot of people might have taken that house and made the kitchen bigger with a family room and the thing. I wanted to make them use a big living room that was so irresistibly beautiful that you just, kids went in there, everybody went in there on Christmas, you know, um, and so forth. And the, the way that it's friendly is the wood paneling looks like a basement, you know, rec room. Um, it's unfinished pine boards, horizontal boards, very specifically. Um, even though there's quite correct, you know, triple hung windows and, and Georgian architectural detail. Um, it it The finish reads like fun basement. And so the and kids it is cozy. going home in there. It is cozy. It is not a small room. It's got a 13 foot ceiling and, you know, big noble mm-hmm. proportions, but... But the shape is fun, puts everybody in a good mood. Um, even though they're very correct 19th century references, there were there, there was like a huge sort of architectural moment of interest in octagons in the 1830s to the 1850s. And they were often added on to older houses as like a bigger scale room than a salt box or whatever would ever have been able to have in it, which is exactly what we did here. It does have a really pretty kitchen though. It's not open. Well, but I don't suck gorgeous. at kitchens. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> when I allocate the priorities for myself, like, you know, people don't need me to have a beautiful kitchen. They can go to Waterworks and look at that showroom. Mm. They can open a magazine. They can watch any movie. You know, that that's easily done. It needs to be big. It needs to have an island. It needs to have two places to eat. The best thing you can ever do for a kitchen is put a fireplace in it, you know, and then the pendant lights, massive presences in the middle of this you know you, anybody can do this you don't need a great decorator to do a great kitchen and you would use it you need a great decorator to do a great living room that you are going to use 
and then find a way, as I did in that house, to capture a sexy date night kind of space for the for the couple. I mean, every the, every the brief of the house was all about family life. We need bigger. We're up here after COVID, you know, and trapped here and spending more time in the country than we ever thought we would. That's all about kids tumbling around. But then I thought, if they've got that, and we're doing that, let's also give them a great room to have a, a cocktail as a as a couple and just for them. And that's the dark brown library, which has real glamour. Yeah. That is so, so okay. <laughs> I love that room. And I, I miss chocolate brown wall colors. What is your like? You miss them or you miss well, Yeah. Them? I feel like they were very popular and then they sort of have gone away. And I think they're just so, Delicious. I mean, who doesn't love a Hershey bar? I completely agree with you. Yeah. Completely. How do you pick a, a, how do you pick a great like chocolate brown wall? Well, you don't really the worst thing you could do is make it too light and brown and make it milk chocolate. Because then it looks like poop. It's just like I've made this mistake. You make it blacker than you think you need to. And if you want to, you can make it black. But there are shades of brown that are so close to black that you think, oh my God, this is scary when you're looking at the chip. Uh, chip. Don't be scared. You need that. And if you paint it too brown and too light and try to dilute the idea, you gotta, you gotta give it another pass. And I, I have done that. No one should feel bad. I was trying to make something sort of less intimidating and family oriented or something. And I was just like, all right, my mistake. Let's, we just need to redo this. Darker, darker, darker. And you- shiny. Would shiny. it shiny? Okay. Yeah. So like lacquer or just brown. a high gloss? Um, high, real high gloss paint is now basically only available through fine paints of Europe. All of these big paint companies like Benjamin Moore have switched to water base. Um, and they say the same words on the can, high gloss or a high gloss porch enamel. And none of that paint is the same as it was five years ago. It really looks like satin. So uh, if you want a true high gloss finish, you've got to use fine paints of Europe. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't either until I started wondering if like the humidity was ruining all my floors or so, you know, I, high gloss is important to me. It's one of my most um, often used tools to make good rooms and um, they should be more upfront about that. I've been screwed a few times, you know, but, but the, Pink can says the same thing. So there's a tip for, for all you so dark brown library it? aspirants out there. <laughs> so what is it about high gloss that you use in your toolbox quite a bit? Well, it doesn't have to be walls. Remember, you know, the biggest, Albert Hadley said the biggest wall in the room is the ceiling and the most overlooked. So one trick is to use high gloss on the ceiling and not the walls. You don't want to use it everywhere. If you do high gloss, say, chocolate brown, dark brown walls, you don't want the moldings to be high gloss if they're white, for instance. They should look like matte plaster. And um, what is it about the, the high gloss uh, that, that is especially useful to me? It brings reflected light into spaces that maybe have no natural light. You know, if you take that and put that kind of paint job in an entrance hall in a New York apartment, which has no windows, 
you won't even remember that there's no natural light. You'll be so intoxicated with the um, the glamour of the, of the finishes in the room that they they make a world, you know. And you're looking for that kind of help when you're a decorator. You're think you're looking for what what could I do to use the weakness of a room against it. I mean, sorry, that didn't come out right. To use the weaknesses against your opponent like a sumo wrestling device, you know, take the darkness and make it an advantage. And then if you have a dark room that has a glossy finish and the, there's low lamp light or candles are lit in there, suddenly it's it's got complete pizzazz. Another thing that can do that is mirrors. I'm never afraid to use mirrors. Clients always are. You have to talk them into that quite gently. And, um, and they think mirrors mean disco or decadence or something, you know. Um, it, it just might seem like somebody's going to start blowing rails on these mirrors or, you know, but the, the way that I mean to use mirrors, and I, I think it usually ends this way, is they make uh, walls disappear. If you want a wall or a column or some unwanted architectural condition to just go away, you mirror it and it blows out the, the physical reality of that, you know, doubles the space, doubles the light, makes something disappear. Well, okay. You said that you don't feel like fabric is your strength, but what what is it that you look for um, when you're choosing fabrics for like upholstery? I mean, I'm sh- I would imagine that you have absorbed so much and know so much about it that we certainly can learn a thing or two. I was, but what you are the important? That. Sure. What are the most important <laughs> things um, to consider when you're Couldn't. selecting a fabric? You have to start somewhere to get into character. And I have said that for me, that usually comes from a piece of furniture or from the shape of a window, you know, some kind of architectural character. And then, but it can come from fabric. So I I have started with a piece of fabric that I fell in love with, like a toile sometimes, you know, that's a toile is something that has a very specific point of view. And it can also be the whole story of the room in a small sample you're holding because it's one of those fabrics where the more you see of it, the prettier it is. You can put it on everything and then you don't have to choose another fabric. So what I'm looking for in a fabric is a, is, is a point of view, if I'm starting with the fabric, which Toile would give me. And then, you know, not to sound like it's just a, a, a dummy answer, you know, I'm looking for um, a sense of luxury, I think. You know, color is, you're going to get that. So I wouldn't say I'm looking for a specific color, although I might be, I might be. But fabrics can have a, 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 give you a real sense of quality. If you look at the fabric of Le Manoc that Pierre Frey owns and has maintained the incredible quality of, and the price reflects it. Um, these are hand-woven, but they have incredible dimension. When you look at the design, it's like looking at something that has three dimensions somehow, like very thickly applied paint, you know, it has depth and, and real weight to it. Certain fabrics by my friend Natalie Farman from, she has a line called Decor Barbar, uh, have the power to completely evoke the 19th century and a kind of lost world of old Russia and Madeleine Castang and a kind of decorating that it's possible to do without the, the point of view that the fabric brings. So on my fabric-driven 
schemes I'm looking for a world to come out of that and then on my other other furniture driven rooms I would say I'm looking for a sense of the exotic that I might find through the monoc or of luxury because of the texture, you know, when you, when like you, build, you mean the hand, it. the literal hand, yeah, the, the yeah. feel and of it. Vel- you know, I'm, I'm not saying this very well, but um, just a little bit of orange velvet can make a whole room feel like even that some brown some place you wouldn't expect to find a fabric as rich as that. <clears throat> you could pretend that it came in on the antique chair and you just didn't take it off. But if you're really good, you put it there to, you know, provide that illusion. Well, I think you used a, a sort of an orange velvet in that brown library. You're in obsessed the... with that brown library. You've got to move on with your life. But... It's all you want to talk about. <laughs> yes, yes. There and me too. Here I am, like you know, 330 pages, and we keep like coming yeah. up with this comments about the one room. There's just this <laughs> one room I can't mm-hmm. get get over it. Um, well, orange and thing. burnt orange are two of my favorite colors. When I was 13. I bought my first sort of MTV piece of clothing, which was a Perry Ellis blazer um, linen um, jacket in in what was explained to me by a British lady when she saw it. She said, oh, it's the most wonderful burnt orange. Um, and I felt cool. And I think that decorating <laughs> is full of psychological cues that we carry mm-hmm. throughout our life of things that may have happened when we were not even thinking about it. And that might be one reason I come back to that color. Well, it's, it's very approachable and simple in a way. So it's like anyone could accomplish this. I mean, not the way you've done uh, yeah, it, but they, like, you they, know, they, they can. <laughs> didn't come they out, can. right? I, did, I don't take that. Way to um, go, Caroline. <laughs> I don't, that's what we're here to talk about is to demystify this stuff. Like, I don't take that the wrong way at all. You, if you do the next three things right after you bought that Louis Fifteenth chair, mm-hmm. which is not expensive, you know, good antiques are cheaper than they've ever been. People don't know how to use them. They're miscatalogued. Nobody cares. Mm. They don't want them. And if you bought that chair at auction, as I did, and paid no, totally no money, and then you put the red velvet on it, and then you put it in a nearly black, dark brown room, hey, you got a book too. I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't, you know, <laughs> neuro It's a one-page book, but... You can be learned. <laughs> Com- to complex composition and style and taste cannot be learned. You you right. probably either got that or you haven't. But um, doing good American passable stuff that isn't totally complex, anybody can have this. Mm-hmm. And part of learning how to do it is exercising restraint, mm-hmm. knowing when to stop. You know, the the most elegant rooms are the, are very simple. How do you know when to stop? In your own projects. Well, what was it Chanel said? Look at the mirror before you go out and take one thing off. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just know when to stop. That's why I'm, it's just that's a gut why I'm the captain. Because I, <laughs> I know when to stop. Sometimes, I mean, I've, when I've, I've annoyed myself sometimes by putting too much furniture in a room and I take it out. Sometimes I have to do it and then see that I did that mm. and then go backwards. I tell, tend not to share that with the clients on an installation, if that's true. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to come in there until I'm happy with it. Mm. That's a rule of thumb. Installation that takes three days, you can come the afternoon of the third day. And that way I have two days to fix all my mistakes. Mm. So you're talking like you're literally installing the house and then maybe going through and pulling things out where you think 
totally. There was too much. Or if mm. I bought pair a pair of something, I might only use one of it. Mm. You know, I need to self-edit like mm-hmm. that. And you do it yourself, or do you have people on your team that help you? I I think it's so hard to edit yourself. Your own. I have people you know. on my team that are better at art. Um, mm-hmm. I have somebody called uh, Britta Geyer, who's from the art world before me. Worked at Kagosian, worked at auction houses. And she's a sort of in-house art specialist. And I have very blinkered and narrow taste in art. I do not have taste, but she has much more range and mm. knowledge than I have. And I'm I'm happy to consult with her about art. And then I have somebody who's better at color than I am. And her name is Kristen Palmer, my studio director. She's just, you know, someone that I've watched develop since she joined me into someone with real, really great instincts and Mm -hmm. taste. Um, But her specific strength is palette. She surprises Mm -hmm. me with color combinations. This is someone that was interested in fashion and Mm -hmm. studied dance and music and just has, you know, everything I said I couldn't do about working in my father's textile business or whatever in the beginning of this conversation. That is probably her strongest Mm. set of instincts when it comes to design Mm -hmm. is fabric and color. And I call upon her to help me. When you so, know, you no moved. Ego. You you need to ask the people that 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 know mm. the best mm-hmm. to make you look good too. So you moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, and I was curious if there, you know, was anything stylistically that changed, maybe in the clients or maybe just in the homes that you was sort of a. Oh my God, what did not change? There could not be more of a change <laughs> than um, East Coast to West Coast. And it helped me grow as a designer because the West Coast was about so much more freedom than I had you know, grown up sort of aware of in New York and in Long Island in the East Coast. Um, the West Coast made me uh, much more flexible um, and much more um, about the sort of fantasy that you can be living outdoors, you know, that, that I, I carry that back into wherever I'm working now and try to make gardens jump into rooms. And, you know, I live in a house by designed by a genius. It's not a particularly luxurious or big house, but Richard Neutra didn't need those those things. You know, my house was built around a, an existing tree. And that poetry, you know, is something that is beyond budget or square footage and looking at that i now know how to do things like that you know when before i was all about choosing a very um elegant mantle or something california you know turned turned me more outward facing yeah how incredible that you get to live in a work of art yeah it is incredible it's i i sometimes you know i don't think a morning goes by that i don't wake up and find it remarkable myself. If you're not a neighborhood snob in LA, you can end up in a really world-class piece of architecture, you know? Um, And there are lots of different ways to have a great life in Los Angeles, you know, in different areas. I've this fantasy of moving to Pasadena. I started with my, the the mother of my older daughter um, in Laurel Canyon. And I thought that was LA, you know, Hollywood and being close to Hollywood and that, that was what I knew. And then when I realized that you could really, anything took half an hour to get to out here and I might as well 
save some money and be on the east side, that's when I ended up in the Neutcher House, just by luck. And, and by the fact that I was used to what prices were in New York, and I knew that was a bargain, because what I paid for this house wouldn't have gotten you anything interesting in New York City. And here it got you a, a house that changed my whole life, you know. But if I'd went and tried to do this on the west side, where Tom Ford lived in a Neutcher House at that time, I forget it, you know, like, <laughs> it's kind of um, neighborhood driven, these things. So you got to just ignore that. Move move to weird places. Do you yeah, think that is the magic of LA? There's no yeah, there's no end to the options to have an interesting life here. Mm-hmm. It's really not driven by cost at all. And I I would say that that is it's fair to say that that is different about the East Coast. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- people nice things, you want nice architecture, you have to move to sort of a more expensive area. I mean, you know, now the funny thing about Manhattan is downtown is more way significantly more expensive than the Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. There are parts of Tribeca that are the most expensive streets, mm-hmm. you know, blocks in the city. And these are, I mean, it's somebody's idea of luxury, but they're they're lofts, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, right. That costs a lot more than the nicest townhouse on Carnegie Hill. Like architecture-wise, they're not... Well, they're not nothing. I mean, they're luxury. They're they're great. But I, you know, as somebody that that wants, I want a building to change my whole life, you know, which my house here in L.A. has done because it's Neutra. I can't take much credit for that, but I, I, I can take credit for being smart enough to buy it. Um, and my house in um, Amagansett, because of the spot that it's in and the fact that it's um, it's this kind of, very, it was this very out of favor 1980 plan of hexagons, <laughs> as, as we were discussing, uh, on stilts. And I just thought, this is the ugliest house I've ever seen, but it's the most beautiful spot in the world. And I can't afford a beautiful house in a beautiful spot. So let's just like lock this in and we'll be here. And years later, I came back to it and turned it into the house I wanted it to be. But ni- neither of those things were because I was like a hedge fund guy or something. I mean, anybody could have bought these places. So I guess I would say I wouldn't see the value for me to go and spend everything I had to live in a nice apartment downtown in New York. I know what it feels like to live in a loft when it didn't cost anything. You know, it, it's cool, but I'm looking for for something else. Well, I, I loved the book and I loved getting to see all of the different... What did you really like about the book? Help help me out here. I I because it's a lot of work doing these books. I really loved here when someone loved it. But tell me what tell me just give me a sentence. What did you love? I love the mix of styles. I think um I would say I'm pretty comfortable with mixing styles and you definitely take it to a new level. Um and yeah, I, I, I sort of what Taryn was saying with how so you sculptural find there's freedom in the book. Yes, because and I, the, I, I just learned up. a lot. Um, I think probably taking more risks in the types of things I'm pairing together. Um, I love the looseness. I think right now, especially more decoratory homes with like all of the window treatments buttoned up and all of the coordination is something you see a lot. And I love how edited it is and, and it's relaxed in a way, your work is in general. So lovely. Thank you. But I think 
I'm going to add to that, Caroline, because as relaxed as the rooms feel, they're also, once you really dig into them and see how the different pieces are playing off of each other, it's really complex. Mm -hmm. um, it may not feel that way on first glance, but there's, there's so much going on, you know, whether it's scale mm -hmm. and, and, you know, a huge piece of art at a huge mirror, which I think in another designer's hands would feel completely out of place. You make it feel balanced. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that's, that seems like a challenging thing to do. And it found it to be something that was really um, fun to look through, through your work. Yeah. Maybe relaxed is the wrong word, but livable, comfortable. Um, natural. Yeah. Natural. Okay. I like everything you're telling me. You don't have to <laughs> worry about my response to that. I, I, what I thought about as I saw the, the book, you know, when, because my struggle before, as I said, was I don't have a signature style. So I wasn't actually sure what I wanted the book to say or what anybody would extract from it, you know, as some kind of coherent message is I wanted, I, I the way this is going to sound delusional, but we've been talking about California references and the freedom that California you know, conferred on me as a, as a designer, which is very much what you're saying you like in the book, the optimistic palette, the use of yellow, the, the, the empty space, you know, not afraid to leave things like a little undone. It reminded me of how much I admired what Alice Waters had done for cooking. You know, there was this sort of French, uh, very elaborate culture of gourmet cooking as a high mass experience, you know, um, and then she came along and said, it's not about that. It's about the region. It's about the simplicity. It's about the naturalness and the freshness. And I did have this moment of fantasy that the message for the book would be that I was trying to do for interior design what Alice Waters <laughs> had done for cooking. So if you edit this into me saying I'm like Alice Waters and or that it I sound important and like a jerk or something, I'll... I'll I'll deny having said any of it, but while I was looking for how to explain what this was about, that uh, that occurred to me. And that's aligning with some of the adjectives that you used to say that you saw in there. Happy colors. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. very awesome. Somebody said, actually, Miles Red said, who's a good friend of mine, years ago when something came out, it was published in AD, and, and he said, um, I love your decorating. It's so optimistic. And... I thought mm -hmm. that's it. That's the nicest thing that I could hear about this. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. I think that Miles is also very optimistic, but probably on Completely. just a different. Completely, I couldn't believe he was the one saying it the, to me. Yeah. He's the most optimistic. Mm -hmm. It's a party of mm -hmm. every room, mm -hmm. you know. We do have a question from a listener that I would love to read and have you answer. Uh oh. If you uh -oh. are up for it. <laughs> let's let's go. Okay. Yeah. Good morning. We purchased an old historic home with the intention of renovating from top to bottom and fixing the faux pas of the previous owners. Thus, the dilemma no one can agree on, the 1980s bookcases. The idea behind them as a library was great, just maybe not executed well, and now I'm just not sure what to do. I want to rip them down and just, and just drywall, potentially put up some beautiful painted molding where everyone else in my circle, from realtors to decorators, say to keep them. But keeping them comes with challenges because if I'm going to keep them, they must be painted, which isn't an inexpensive endeavor, and I would prefer if they went to the crown and could install beautiful picture lights, see my rendering, but that's not possible without taking down the existing beautiful crown. Thanks, Rachel. 
So yes, she has a great long room. She's got sort of three walls of bookcases on the back mm -hmm. half of the room. Mm -hmm. um, There's sort of a wood grain. And she sort of has an inspiration photo where they're painted navy with some picture lights over okay. the top. What so the um, bottom is Rachel's rendering of yes. how she'd like this to end, yes. she thinks. And it's a good idea, but why? What? Tell me what is stopping that from happening? Why can't she do what she wants with the picture lights and so forth? Um, it sounds like she wishes the the bookcases went all the way to the ceiling, but instead right. they kind of they she, don't. But yeah. she's not willing to do any construction. We've got to accept these bookcases yes. for what they are. And what yes. do we do? Okay, because we're not doing any architecture work. Yeah. Well, this sounds just like every real life situation I've ever found myself in. So let's see if I can figure this out. If I'm dreaming and I'm doing anything I want in here and it costs nothing to dream. So I know we probably can't do this, but if I can do anything for this room that I'm looking at as it is in the top picture, I would cut that window that's straight ahead down to the floor and turn that into a French window that has a railing or something, you know, that if, if it's not able to have a balcony, but I would take all my budget and make that happen because all the windows are the same size. And it would be much more dramatic if the one straight ahead on the axial view was tall and to the floor to ceiling, you know, doors. But back to reality, um, if I were Rachel and I were trying to make this not look like California closets, I would demolish the bookcases on left and right and retain them just at the end. I think she's, funnily enough, one of the reasons she doesn't like this and has 80s vibes is there's too much of them. Now, with books in them, they'll look a whole lot better, but I would compress the wall space occupied by the bookcases into just the end and keep them as they wrap the corner. But this, the, the two with three bays each between the windows at right and left should go away um, and then paint them. And there's a very nice um, solution to bookcase lights, which are clip-on, uh, not like the hardware store kind, but the, you know, there's like a nice little screw. They're made of oxidized brass and the shade is pretty. And um, she can get clip-on bookcase lights and I would do four of those at that bookcase at the end fill them completely with books. She can paint the color she wants. And that makes things a lot better to me. Um, I am not a fan of the floor. Even though she didn't ask about that, I would paint that floor. Well, we, we spoke of high gloss paint and the potential to change everything before. I would do that here in this room without hesitation. Paint the bookcases and the floor. Yeah, you're totally right. I feel like the, the ones on the sides almost make it feel like a schoolroom. But... Right. I mean, it's like a music teacher would be in here, you yeah. know, and giving classes or something. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they probably are that many because somebody had to accommodate a certain amount of books. But if you're mm -hmm. making a room and you want the bookcases to have more impact, then you want to, mm -hmm. you know, frame them and have fewer of them and frame the yeah. view. No, that's that is Any good? seems pretty simple. Yeah. I mean, what are we going to do about that air conditioner in the window? At left, who's going to pay for the central air conditioning we need to put in here? That costs a bomb. Sorry, Rachel. <laughs> Rachel, <laughs> Rachel, we've got a problem. We, we need metal casement windows and central air. 
No, no, no. I think we just, <laughs> you know, we solved Rachel's problem because also we found some money, right? We have less bookcases means we have to buy less books mm -hmm. to put in them. Yeah. And still get a better room. Yeah, the clip one, the clip one book lights are genius too. I I've never seen those. Those but... uh those come from a place in London. Um there used to be a, a less expensive one on circle lighting and that went away. Everything mm -hmm. great gets discontinued, right? Of course. So there's a place in London and we can drop in the name afterwards. It's it's I'm forgetting offhand who makes it. But those those she won't miss these bookcase lights. Mm -hmm. You know, the typical kind that look like picture lights when she has those. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thanks, Rachel, for your question. Yes. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, David, for sharing your book with us and sharing your time with our listeners. It is such a pleasure. I have used Ballard Designs um, very happily whenever I can in the past. And one time I can think of that's in print was uh, Teen Vogue asked me to do uh, a teenager's room makeover. And I asked the girl who was lovely, you know, what, what, what's your vibe? What do, what do we want to end up with here? And she said she loved the movie Marie Antoinette, which had just come out yeah. when we did this. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of a savvy answer. So one of the things I did was put two French Rococo shaped mirrors from Ballard Designs, one over the other, over her desk. Oh, and wonderful. I do love the things that you sell and they are very user-friendly in terms of price which i appreciate thank you we appreciate that we're we're coming to california we need you so we need your strength i don't know if we can say that liz liz come, is giving me the soon. eyeball I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> come as I soon know. as possible <laughs> yeah. the list um, is signed <laughs> thank you for saying all those nice things about the book it really feels great to hear that thank and thanks for having me it. Thank you for sharing your work with us. It was just really, really wonderful to walk through and so much to look at too. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy, happy decorating! decorating.